Um, Laura's going to come and read our passage, which is Psalm 73, and then Craig is going to come and preach for us. should be able to find that on page 586 of the Church Bibles. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths they claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? My earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who, who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Thanks, Laura. Do keep that passage open in front of you. Excuse me while I arrange the furniture. I think... Someone a little shorter than me was preaching this morning, perhaps. There we go. Must be better. Okay, well, let's just pray once more and ask for God's help. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, the words we've just read, they are sobering. And they are precious. And we pray that as we read them, hear them, as they sit on our hearts now, you would use them to make sure that nobody in this room would walk away from you thinking that you condone evil. And that nobody in this room would harbor bitterness in their heart towards you, thinking that you haven't done for them what you should. Please help us to see more of the glory of Jesus. And to be able to say, it is good to be near God. So please do those things through your word now as we read it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is one of those psalms that um, 
if you've been in church for a while, you might know. And often I speak to people and they say this is one of their favorite psalms. In fact, I spoke to one of the other pastors this evening who said this was his favorite psalm. And there's always a risk in that kind of scenario that I'm about to butcher something that someone really loves. I hope that's not going to be the case for you. This psalm is asking a question. And the question is very simple. Why do bad people have it good so much of the time? Why do the bad have it good? Why is it that people who are not living good lives seem to have the best lives often? And that question can take two forms. It can take the kind of out there form, the intellectual form, the um, bad things happening, bad people in the world. So you look at the world and you see people who are deeply corrupt and immoral, who do terrible things and seem to get away with it. So there was another news article recently, um, another update about the apparent murder of, I'm going to get this name, pronounce it wrong, but Jamal Khashoggi, um, Saudi critic and journalist, who seems to have been lured into the Saudi embassy and uh, drugged, suffocated and dismembered. And apparently, as far as we can tell, whoever ordered that has not come to justice. And you look at that and you think, how can that happen in a civilized society? And you, I guess any number of people, any number of scenarios in the world, you look at the news and you, you know that somewhere there is a dictator who is ordering the murder or the starvation of thousands, millions of his people sitting in a nice comfy chair while his well-schooled, well-heeled children are playing at his feet. And you think, that shouldn't be allowed. Why is that happening? In the words of Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in the last century, those who deserve the hottest hell often have the warmest nest, or so it seems. And maybe that's a bit extreme. But maybe you look at the news, everything that's going on right now with British politics, and you think there are politicians there who are making decisions in their best interests. And they don't care about what happens to ordinary people. Or just in the everyday, you you meet people who are happy to climb on the backs of other people to get on in life, to further their own interests by just pushing other people aside or treading them down. And you think, they're getting away with it. If there was a God who, who was just, who cared about these things, why did they get away with it? That's the out there question, the, the intellectual question. But there's also a personal question here. And this is specifically if you're a Christian. Asking, why should I follow God, keep following God, if evil people prosper? That's saying, why should I keep following God when it looks like my life is harder than people who don't follow God? Let's say as a Christian, you make a decision to obey God, to honor Jesus in your life. And life just gets harder pretty soon or immediately after you do that. It might be, um, some of you will know, you became a Christian. You decided to follow Jesus and then your family turned against you. Or your work relationships got complicated as soon as they found out you were a Christian. Or friends got a bit distant. Or you'd started giving to support the work of the gospel in church or in mission. And you became financially worse off. And you think, hang on, if I didn't follow God, my life would be easier. Or maybe harder still. Hard things happen. A diagnosis or even being disowned by somebody. And you can just look around and think, well, those people who don't follow God, they have an easier life than me. Why is it that I have a harder life of following God? Why should I keep following God? And these questions matter. So if it's the out there question, the intellectual question, maybe you're asking that and you wouldn't say you're a Christian. But that can really kind of turn you off from Christianity. That can make you think, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. 
because, well, all these bad things happen and God doesn't seem to care about them. But the personal question, that matters too. Because if you're a Christian thinking that, thinking, why should I follow Jesus? You'll do one of two things. You will either say, well, that's it then. I'm off. I'm out of here. God has given me a hard life of following him. That shouldn't be what happened, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this in. And you might have seen people do that. I've seen people do that. And just cut ties with church, cut ties with Christians and walk off. But there's another thing that you can do, and that is to stay. But to cut off your relationship with God another way. Because you don't really trust him. And you can't have a relationship with someone you don't trust. And what you do is you then use God to try and pursue the better life that you think you should have. And by doing your good works, by serving at church, by giving, by even telling other people about Jesus, what you're doing inside is you're stacking up all the good things you've done to try and get God to give you a good life. And you're becoming more and more bitter because he's not doing it. He's not giving you what you think you should have. On the outside, you look great, but inside, you're getting further and further and further away from saying you know and love God. Well, that is where the psalmist is. Asaph, who wrote this psalm, he was a temple singer, so involved in the worship of God in ancient Israel. And this psalm, it might have been used after his time in exile. So Israel got overtaken by the local superpower and taken off into exile, away from their country. And this might have been used when they were surrounded by enemies. And literally saying, why is it these people who have done such awful things to us are allowed to get away with it? But the psalm is written in the past tense, which means Asaph got through it. He asked this question and then came through it. As we read the psalm, we're going to follow his footsteps to know how do we cope when we have this question. Why do the bad have it good? Three steps we're going to go through. And the first one is this. The problem that he sees, the prosperity of the wicked. Verses 1 to 14. Look at that first line with me. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now that is an important line. That really sets up the whole psalm. He is setting out what he believes, what everyone believes. Let's say you aren't a Christian. Maybe you've kind of found yourself in church and not quite sure why you're here, but someone dragged you along. This will probably be in your kind of religious ideas somewhere. That if you are good, God will be good to you if there's a God. If there's a God, he likes good people. He doesn't like bad people. So be good and he'll be good to you. Be bad and he'll kind of, kind of stuff coal into your Christmas stocking or that, that kind of thing. Bad things will happen to you. And we kind of rely on this. Like our ideas about morality and law and order are based on the idea, do good to get good things. Avoid, don't be bad, be good. And God will like you. That's what he's saying. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely. Then look at the very next word, but. Verse 2, but as for me. That doesn't seem to be true. Asaph looks around and he realizes the world doesn't seem to be running on that logic. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. He's having a crisis of faith. He's saying, I'm losing my grip on God. Why? Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looks around and he sees a world where if you ignore God, you get on in life. And if you follow God, you don't. The opposite of what it should be. Prosperity, the word we've got there, it it's okay, it's not quite capturing what's there. So if you don't know, the Old Testament was written in a language called Hebrew, and the word there is one you might know, it's shalom. And it's more than just kind of financial prosperity, it means a whole life peace. It means everything going well for you. It means you look at that person 
And you think, looking at your life, God must love you so much because he is giving you such a good ride in life. There are no flies in the ointment. There's no um, maggot in the apple. Like If your life was a computer, it never crashes. It never even slows down. never even gets a little spinning wheel of death. So what does that mean? Well, look at verse 4. He describes what this means for them, what that shalom is like. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're always healthy. They never seem to get ill. They don't have dodgy knees. They don't get Parkinson's. They don't get premature hair loss. Verse 5, they're free from human burdens. The, the kind of things that get the rest of us, they don't seem to get it. They, their stocks never crash. They never have sudden illness. They never have to change their plans. Their life never gets derailed. They never have to give up their dreams. It's like they've got a charmed life, like they're superhuman, above all of that normal human stuff. And because of that, verse 6, without all that normal human stuff to hold them back, they can give all their energy to doing as much corruption and evil and violence as they can. Verse 6, they're proud. They wear arrogance like a necklace. They're violent. They tread on the little people in life to get themselves higher up. If you get in their way, you know about it. Verse 7, their hearts are calloused. Um, I used to do a bit of rowing and... First, your hands would turn into this kind of blistering, horrible mess. And then after a few months, you'd get calluses all over your hands. And when you get calluses, you can't feel anything anymore. He's saying their hearts are so used to doing evil, they cannot feel it. And so they're just in the groove. Just kind of churning out violence and aggression against other people. And then verse 8, they're they're rising up. They're scoffing, oppressing, threatening people because there's no one there to stop them. Verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Literally, their tongues strut throughout the earth, acting and speaking like they own the whole place. And verse 10, other people see this and they love it. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. It means they lap it up. They buy the books. They hang on every tweet. They elect them as their leaders. They give them primetime TV shows. The crueler and the nastier and the more divisive, the better. And verse 11, to cap it all, what do they do? They make themselves higher than God. They say, what would God know? How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And they taunt people who are trusting in God for justice. And verse 12, he says, this is what the wicked are like. They have this shalom, this peace, this prosperity, this charmed life. And because of that, they just go on increasing in power and wealth and doing it more and more. Asaph, this, this, this psalmist, looks around, and as far as he can see, God is not good to the pure in heart. He is good to those who ignore him. And who don't care about anyone else either. I wonder if you felt that. Remember the beginning of the Syrian civil war, when the Syrian government was just starting to try and put down the rebellion that was happening. I remember seeing news clips of President Assad doing an interview, and he would normally be in, I think, a library so kind of surrounded by you know, a lovely desk and chair and surrounded by these expensive leather-bound books looking suited and very calm. And then you'd read that in his prisons, women were being tortured and young boys were being hanged. And you'd think, what? how can that happen? And I'd be praying, Lord, take him down. He should not be allowed to be in government. Or maybe a little less extreme. For the original readers, this is talking about the enemies of God's people, people who want to just wipe out God's people, Israel. And for us today as Christians, there are people who would really rather that Christians just weren't on this earth. You might know of things that have been said by people like Richard Dawkins or the late Sir Christopher Hitchens. 
about how religion and often particularly Christianity just poisons everything and is bad and should be wiped out. Or people like Rowan Atkinson, who I love Mr. Bean, but there's a quote from him about how actually it's the right of everyone to laugh at religion. We should ridicule things that are so ridiculous. Or it might be normal people around you, people who ignore God and just seem to have a better life because of it. People who can be economical with the truth in their workplace or on the tax return or whatever it is, and actually that gets them on in life. Or people who just keep all the resources for themselves, and guess what? They have nicer holidays. Their kids have nicer clothes and toys, and look at the other kids and go, why don't I have that? And what do we do? We say, well, surely then it is wasted. My devotion to God, my serving in church, when I could really use that time for myself, my giving when I really need that money for myself, surely all of that is wasted because God seems to favor those who ignore him. And that's what the psalmist says, verse 13, have a look at it. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Even worse, all day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. He says it's a complete waste of time. He says, look at those people, the people who ignore God, the people who tread on the backs of other people, and then look at me and look at our lives and tell me I should keep following God. Go on, I dare you. That's what he's saying. And I don't know for you in what way you identify with this. Maybe things in your life, if you're a Christian, that are directly because you're a Christian. Relationships, friends, people who just kind of give a little, you know, that smile that says, you know, they look down on you a little bit. Or even just ignore you. Or just hard things in life that you think, surely this shouldn't happen to a Christian if God loves me. It's all through history. The first Christians got thrown to the lions. And every age since then, Christians will have asked this question. Why should I keep following God? Well, this psalm is here to help us and to move us. To make sure we don't walk away and make sure we don't shrink away from God. So we're going to move on. The second thing we see is the perspective the psalmist finds. The destiny of the wicked. I'm using the language from the psalm here. Verse 15, he says, If I'd spoken out like that, I'd have betrayed your children. He's keeping quiet. He's saying that he's got some kind of position of authority or leadership in God's people, and he doesn't want to let anyone down. He doesn't want other people to be discouraged, so he just keeps inside. But that's not going to last very long, because... 16, he says, it troubles him deeply. There's a disconnect between what he believes to be true about God and what he sees in the world. And so he'll come to church. Might be here tonight. And there's a disconnect. And everything feels hollow. And it needs to be resolved somehow. So what does he do? He goes to God with the problem. Verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. He goes to God with the problem. Some of you might have done the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme. So I did that uh, quite a few years ago now. And everyone knows the best thing about that is the expeditions that you go on. You go camping, you go on these amazing walks in amazing places. And I went on one of those in Wales. And it's part of Wales I've been to before, so I knew the area, or I thought I knew the area. So I said, we don't need the map for this bit. We're fine. I know where we're going. Here's the path. And I set off, and everyone in my group followed me. Half an hour later, we were in Bracken that I kid you not, was this high and completely, completely lost. In completely the wrong place, and we couldn't see anything because the bracken was up to, up to here. What we needed was to get some perspective, to get up, to get above everything, to see where everything was, to see where the path was, to get above it all. And that's kind of what the psalmist does here. 
He gets perspective, but it doesn't come until he goes to God. And just as a quick aside here, if you've got this kind of a question, whether you're a Christian or not, it's not going to get resolved until you take it to God. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be able to resolve that kind of attention until you pray about it, bring it to him, and stop shouting at him and say, okay, here it is, this is how I feel, please teach me, show me in your word, through other people, show me how this works. If you're not a Christian, you have a brain, you're supposed to use it, God expects you to use it, but you're not going to square everything off until you meet a God you can trust. So don't expect to be able to, until you are willing to go to God and say, okay, well, if you're there, well, I don't get this. Will you show me this? So he approaches God. He goes into the sanctuary, the temple, the place where God's presence was with Israel in the temple. And what does he see? He sees gold. He sees beautiful, ornate things using the worship of God. Like, uh, amazing. Everything's covered in gold or like, amazing panel, paneled cedar wood. It's beautiful, but it's all covered in blood. The altar, the walls, the floor, bowls of blood, blood sprinkled over everything. The blood of sacrifices that screamed out, if you reject this God, if you turn away from this God, you pay for it with blood. You don't get close to this God without blood. If you turn away from him, you forfeit your life. And that's where they would take sacrifices of animals, sheep, goats, to to stand in their place so that they could approach God and not die. And that, he says, that's where he goes. And then verse 17b, he says, there I understood their destiny. There, seeing that blood, seeing the altar, seeing the place where the sacrifices had to be made, seeing how serious it was to reject this God, there I understood that God will not just let this go. There I understood that in a world where God sees Rohingya Muslims being driven from their homes, where he sees babies in Manchester thrown off bridges, where he sees hospitals in Syria hit by airstrikes, if he was to see that and go, oh, whatever, he would stop being God. He cannot do it. He is unable to do that. That's not who he is. He cannot let it go. And so it's as if, getting that perspective, the psalmist sees the path these people are on. And it's, it's stretching out, and they're merrily walking along it, going their own way. But they can't see what he sees, because he's higher up. That road ends, and it ends in a cliff drop. And they don't see it until it's too late. And so you have this sudden reversal. In the beginning, verses 8 and 9, they were rising up and getting stronger. Then verse 18, they're cast down to ruin. Verse 12, there's the permanence. They're always at ease. They're going on forever. And then verse 19, how suddenly they are destroyed. Swept away by a tsunami. And verse 20, you read it and you shudder. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, it's as if God wakes up. And they're like a dream that's just gone. One day when God rouses himself, they will be just gone like a bad dream. This charmed life ends just like that. The, the shalom, the prosperity they had, it's got a sell-by date, and it's coming. Saying, so here's the first solution to the problem. If you're thinking, why doesn't God sort this out? The answer is he will. He will judge every kind of evil, but on his timetable. In business, there's a, a, a phrase. You call something a black swan event. 
It means something that you didn't think could happen until it happened. Um, in the second century, there was a Roman poet, and he made a phrase. It's like a black swan, meaning it's, it doesn't exist, because he thought black swans didn't exist. Then it turned out black swans did exist. And so we've got this phrase, a black swan event, something you thought could never happen. And then it happens and changes everything. And then you go, I really should have seen that coming. That's kind of what the psalmist is saying here. Just because God hasn't sorted things out yet doesn't mean he's not going to. And there are hints here that God isn't passive, but he's active. Asaph says, verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. It's like God isn't just letting them get away with it. He's actually placing them on this almost a conveyor belt. I was reading, as you do, about slaughterhouses, sorry vegans, on Wikipedia this week. And the way they're designed is you have these kind of single file channels with high walls and long sweeping curves. So the animals can only see the animal in front of them. Nothing else. They don't know what's happening. They just follow the animal in front of them until they get there. Sorry, vegans. But it's almost like that. God, Sam seems to be saying something like you've put them on this track so they don't see what's coming until they get to that cliff. Maybe you're not a Christian and you've thought, well, the only people who seem to become Christians are those who have hard lives. Something happens to them, or maybe they're just a kind of slightly weaker personality and they, yeah, they just need a crutch in life, something to support them. Well, if that's true, couldn't that be because people with easy lives don't think they need God? If your life is good, don't make the mistake of thinking that that means God is okay with you, I think Asaph would say to us. If you're a Christian, I think Asaph would say, don't envy those who are on slippery ground. Don't envy them. Why would you envy someone in that situation? The right response is patience. With God's timetable, waiting. The Bible says that Jesus is going to return in glory with his angels to judge the living and the dead. And he will put everything to rights then and just wait. Be patient for that. And have pity. Not envy. Have pity on those who are on that slippery slope. The New Testament says that people will call on rocks to fall on them rather than face God on that day. Why would you envy somebody in that situation? You wouldn't, would you? You'd pity them. And that pity would lead you to compassion. And that compassion would lead you to sharing the hope of someone who can take you off that slippery slope, the hand that can snatch you off that. It's not the only motivation we have as Christians for sharing the gospel with people, but it is it's a powerful one. There's a song um, that envisions someone talking, like a Christian, talking to someone who isn't a Christian. And it's the kind of internal monologue in his head. And he's saying, here I go again. I'm talking about the rain. I'm mulling over things that won't even live past today. Time is not his friend. This might be my last chance to tell him that you love him. So why am I talking about the rain? Patience and pity, not envy. That's the perspective the psalmist gets. But there's more. The third thing we see in this is the gospel. Glory for the wicked. Because where we've got to so far sounds a bit like the kind of Sunday School 101 at the beginning. God loves good people, he hates bad people. It's just, it's just deferred for a little bit. So be good, and in the end God will reward you, and stop being bad. 
except we are not good. It's really easy to read this from the psalmist's perspective and say, yeah, yeah, those wicked people, oh, they're terrible, aren't they? I'm the guy who deserves good things from God. That's not what the psalmist is doing. That's not what he is saying by the end of it. I remember a student who I met in Cambridge, where I lived for a few years, and um, he came to university to do a teacher training qualification, and he, he looked great. He was, he'd been a Christian a few years, and he had very high standards for his own kind of personal morality. So he looked at the Bible and he said, well, I am going to, I'm not going to mess around, you know, outside of marriage with, um, you know, sex before marriage, none of that. I'm, I don't get drunk. I hate people who get drunk. Um, I'm going to keep myself clean, do things God's way. And now I'm at uni, I'm ready to meet someone. I'm ready to uh, meet my perfect person. Then we'll settle down, we'll get married, and it's going to be wonderful. That's the plan. And you'd look at him and you think, oh, he looks great from the outside. The problem is God didn't deliver on his plan. God didn't set him on that path to the perfect life he wanted. And he was so disillusioned that six months later, he was visiting sex workers in London. Nine months later, he'd cut off all contact with Christians and had completely walked away from Jesus. And the psalmist is recognizing something like that in himself in this psalm. He hasn't gone there, but he knows that he could. And there are clues that he's putting in to help us see that. So verse 2, look right at the top again. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I envied the arrogant. Did you see that first time around? I envied them. I wanted to be like them. I looked at them in their life, even though they were completely defying God. And I said, I want some of what you've got. He knows that even when he's looking at other people and saying how terrible the things they're doing are, there's a little bit of him that wants to be like them. He's envious they're getting away with it. And you know, we all have in our hearts, Christians or not Christians, this kind of, it's called legalism. Like a malicious code that's been injected into our hearts that says, if I follow God, if I do good things, he has got to bless me. He's got to give me a good life. And if he doesn't, there's something wrong with the world. And so we see people, if we're a Christian, getting away with things, and we think, that's not fair. I should have that life. I want to be like them at some level. God was meant to give me something. There was meant to be something in this for me because I was doing my part. And the psalmist looks back at this and says, verse 21 and 22, my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Literally, something like I was a hippopotamus before you like blundering around, crashing into things, not understanding, not relating, not loving, not knowing, just completely not getting it. Like that student who denounced all these people doing these terrible things and then jumped into exactly the same things because he envied them, because God hadn't given him the good life that he thought he deserved. It is dangerous to read this psalm and think, I am the pure in heart and God owes me. But you know, in the rest of the Bible, we see we're not the pure in heart. Let's get specific. <clears throat> this talks about people being violent. Now, I'm not going to do a show of hands for who's punched someone this week, but I'm willing to bet it's less than half of us. Let's be really generous. Less than half of us have punched someone this week. So half of you are you know, pretty clear. If you haven't punched someone this week, in what ways have you been violent to others? In what ways have you wanted to hurt people? In what ways have you, just in little ways, trodden other people down, used them to get what you wanted, pushed them aside, 
And even the bits you haven't acted on, how much more was there in you that wanted to do those things? Well, let me ask you another question. Just about your experience of yourself in life. What standards have you got for yourself? What standards do you set for this is a good life? Have you always kept them? Have you even kept them in the last week? And now think, if there's a God, wouldn't his standards be a little bit higher than yours? Maybe a lot higher than yours. Maybe terrifyingly higher than yours. We are not the pure in heart. We should be on the other side of this psalm. We, the Bible says, are the wicked. We should be on the slippery slope. So there's, on that day that it describes where Jesus comes back, if justice is done, I should be swept away by terrors. On the day when God rouses himself, he should look at me and say, get out of my sight and turn terribly away from me. I should be the one on the slippery slope, cast down to ruin. And yet, look at verse 23, that word yet, instead, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and lead me into your glory. And you read that and you should think, how? How did I get onto that side of this psalm when I'm not the pure in heart? How did I get there? Yet, and this is where we see Jesus. Because you see, God is good to the pure in heart. He really is. But that is a category of one. Only one person has ever been in that category. Only Jesus is the pure in heart. And you see him all through this psalm. He is the one who should have been a man of prosperity, a man of shalom. Instead, he was a man of sorrows. You hear him in verse 14. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings me punishments. He should have had permanence and ease forever just established and stable. Instead, he was crushed underfoot by powerful people who were in it for themselves. He should have been recognized and adored. He should have had people around him lapping up his glory. Instead, he was despised and rejected by men. He should have laid claim to heaven and earth. Instead, he carried a cross. He should have had the better life that we all think we deserve. Instead, he committed himself to our slippery slope. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that he has entered the sanctuary. Not just to find the the answer to a question, but as the sacrifice, the once for all, cover everything, everything you've broken, past, present, future, doesn't matter, the sacrifice. That means we can come to God. And so the hand that should push you down the cliff instead holds your hand. Verse 23 again, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by the right hand. I thought I was losing my grip on God, but it turns out he's got me. And the reason I know he's not letting go is nothing to do with me, but everything to do with Jesus. His purity, his sacrifice, his goodness in my place. And you guide me with your counsel. I find this life confusing. I have questions that just don't make sense to me. But that doesn't change what he has done and that he has got me. And then afterwards, there's a future. Those people who thought they were so secure, they have been completely cast down. But I've got a future. You will take me into glory. And that glory doesn't just mean nice things. It doesn't just mean a good life. It doesn't just mean um, brightness and goldenness and your kind of pictures of heaven. It means God's weightiness, his substance, everything about him that is mind-blowing. And seeing that and enjoying it and savoring it, being blown away by God. And so he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. 
Those people, they lay claim to heaven and earth. I don't care. They can keep them. I've got something better than heaven and earth. My heart and flesh may fail. My body, my mind, my strength, they'll come to an end, but I don't care. God has given himself to me. He is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance. He has given himself to me forever. God's goodness doesn't mean giving you a better life. It means giving you himself. Taking you from one side of this psalm to the exact opposite. From get out of my sight to giving himself to us. Well, I said the psalms are here to transport you, to move you, to teach you to move from A to B in the Christian life. Now, nothing's changed for the psalmist. He's still in the same situation. But look at the change. Verse 2, he says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Verse 28, as for me, it's good to be near God. Verse 1, he said, surely God is good to Israel. Verse 28, it is good to be near God. See how it's come all the way? He realizes now what's true, what's good. Because of Jesus, we can be near to God when we don't deserve it. And that's good. So as we finish, will you let this psalm do that for you? If you're not a Christian, are you going to let this psalm challenge your ideas of your own goodness? And say to you, as you look at the world and kind of call out the bad things that are there, yes, they're bad, but to also look at yourself and go, there's a problem in here too. And God, if he's God, he can set the timetable for sorting it out. But in that timetable, I need him to move me from one side of this to the other. I need him to take my hand off the slippery slope through Jesus and bring me into his presence. If you're a Christian, what are you going to do when this question hits you? When you ask, why do the bad have it good? Are you going to walk away complaining that God didn't give you what you wanted? Are you going to stay and kind of just wade around in your bitterness, muttering about how God's let you down? Have you already done that? Do you need to recognize that and just turn from that, repent, and recognize you're not who you thought you were? Or are you going to say, with verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. I'm not going to chase the life they're having. Their shalom is going sour any day now. And no matter what it looks like, no matter what my life looks like, 70, 80 years, that will be a drop. A drop that is forgotten when that glory bursts in on my eyes. I've got God, and I can draw near to him, and that's good. And if you're confused, let me just invite you, just bring that to Jesus. Particularly, bring it to the cross and let his love, his grace, his mercy that he shows you there, dying in your place, let that just drown out some of the noise of the questions that you're asking. Not that they stop becoming important and they they don't need answering, but you bring them to a God you trust and start wondering instead, how on earth did I get to be here? And then the very last line of the psalm, he says, I will tell of all your deeds. Instead of focusing inwards, turning outwards and starting to tell other people how good God is and how good his grace is. Well, let's pray together that we would do that. Father God, forgive us for when we think the blessing that you promised us is a good life in this world. What a shallow dream that is when you hold out something so much better. Help us to see that heaven and earth are not enough. Help us not to envy those who do not know you. But to say it is good to be near God. And to rejoice that we have that access through your son Jesus. 
And if any of us are just stuck in that place of confusion and bitterness, then please just show us how your gift to us of life and your presence given to us is so much better. And for any of us here who are looking in from the outside, will you convince us of the things that you say here? That you really do have a timetable for sorting out the world and that we need to be on the right side of that. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for speaking to us. Please keep those words in our hearts over this week. In Jesus' name, amen.